This Friday, August 5th, will mark the opening ceremonies of the 2016 Summer Olympic Games in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. How many of you guys like the Olympics? I love the Olympics every couple of years. It's fun to follow the drama, the athletic competition, the politics behind it, whether or not Olympic Village will be standing by the time it's done, all those fun things. But you know that the highlight of the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games is when the Olympic torch comes into the stadium and it lights the cauldron of the host site, thus marking the beginning of the Games. And the showmanship attached to that over the years has increased, and it's impressive uh, in, in its sight. You know, the origin of the Olympic flame is based in Greek mythology, but the modern expression of this in the Olympic Games is believed, uh, it is believed that the flame has been perpetually lit since the late 1920s, early 1930s, and before every Olympic Games began, there's a ceremony that happens in Olympia, Greece, that begins the relay, which will eventually end at the host site. So this year... On April 21st, the ceremony began in Greece. And as the ceremony began, it was, it was a number of days in Greece, and then from there the flame moved to Switzerland, where it was eventually moved to Brazil. It landed in Brazil on May 3rd. And the relay continued from that point. By this upcoming Friday, the torch relay will have traveled through Brazil for 92 days. It will have reached 90% of the population. And if you know how big Brazil is and the, the massive population there, that is an impressive feat. The torch will have passed through 300 cities and towns. And all in all, 12,000 torchbearers will participate in its travel over 20,000 miles by road and 16,000 miles by air. The role of the torchbearer is one of great honor. It's a role that is viewed as a person who guards something important and advances that thing that is important. Imagine with me for a moment if you were a torchbearer, that you were in the relay, but you didn't know when the torch was coming to you. Imagine that when the torch arrived to you that you had no idea what to do next or where to go. I mean, that would be a pretty embarrassing thing. The world is watching. It's waiting for the advancement of this flame so the games could begin. It'd be embarrassing because of the importance of the torch. Hence, we've all heard the expression, passing the torch, right? Passing the torch is an expression that we use to say this is something that's significant, that's moving on from one person to the next through season and season. Well, today we conclude our series called Rethinking Your Favorite Bible Verse. And we've looked at a variety of verses over the last few months. We could look at a number more. We've been encouraged, we've been challenged, we've been corrected. But the passage we look at today in Matthew chapter 28 is a passage in which Jesus is passing the torch. And he's passing the torch to his 11 disciples that remain there in front of him. But in a very real way, he's passing the torch to you. And he's passing the torch to me. And before we read the text, here's my biggest fear. My biggest fear 
is that so many of us have dropped the torch. That we didn't see it as important. Or that we didn't understand our role as the torchbearer to both guard something and advance something that God himself would have us to do. And so turn with me to Matthew chapter 28 as we're challenged and maybe even confronted afresh with this passage that we call the Great Commission. It's familiar to many of us. Matthew 28 is found on page 835. Please do turn there with me and follow along. This is what it says. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is nearing the end of his earthly ministry. In fact, these are the last recorded words in the Gospel of Matthew. He had come. He had displayed God's power in a variety of ways. He had taught. He had served as a sacrifice for people's sins in which he died. Many came to faith in him. He rose again from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the devil, securing eternal life. This is the wonderful news of the Gospel that God gives you new life and eternal life when you put your faith in the person of Jesus. And you can imagine the sense that these 11 disciples had. They see him again. Some worship him and some doubt him. At the same time, there's fear attached to this context. And at the very same time, there's a sense. You can almost feel it in the text. It's the collective sense of, now what? What do you want me to do next? It's that same sense that I hear from people from time to time. So many Christians that have a wonderful encounter with Jesus, they were told about God's love for them. They experienced that love. They saw their own sin and their need to be forgiven. They put their faith in Christ. They received tremendous joy, new life, and eternal life. And as they continue to take a step down the path in their relationship with God, there becomes a sense, now what? What do you want me to do next? Go to church? Yeah. Grow spiritually? Of course. How do I do that? Well, in a variety of ways. But beyond that, isn't there something I'm supposed to do in this life with God? And here's where we see the Great Commission fits in. Jesus is standing before his disciples before he leaves them, and he's passing the torch. You're supposed to do something, he says. You're supposed to live a certain type of life. And if we were to summarize it, we'd summarize it this way. Christians, your calling in life, the most important thing for you to do is to be a disciple maker. Your calling is to live a disciple making life. Well, what does that mean? Let's look at this calling a little bit more carefully. We might divide it in really two ways. The what of the calling and the who of the calling. 
We often hear this passage, this very well-known passage, to be one of missionary calling for those who would go off to a foreign land and serve God. And in all reality, that is true. Some of you will be like Carol Perkins and Joanne and Mary Lou and go to a foreign country to serve God, sometimes short-term, sometimes indefinitely with your life. God does that. But this passage is not just meant for those who are going abroad. This passage is meant for everyone, for everyone who would call themselves a Christian. You ask, what does God want me to do with my life? Answer, make disciples. Wasn't that just for pastors and missionaries? No, it's for everyone. How do we know? Well, let's look at this charge more carefully. Verse 19, look at it with me. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says very directly, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. There's a common misconception about this charge, and this is the misconception. We often think that going is the primary command here, don't we? I mean, look at your Bible. It says, go, therefore. And it's a no wonder that a vast majority of Christians don't think this applies to them. I mean, you're rooted in Northeast Ohio. <laughs> Some of you say, I know God is, has me here. My job is here. This is how I provide for my family. My extended family is here. I'm supposed to be here, and I know that. And so if he is telling me to go but I know I'm supposed to be here, well, then it makes sense that this must be for somebody else. But this is the misunderstanding. Because the command here in the original language is not going. There's one command in this passage, and the command is to make disciples. And there are three supporting descriptions, participles, of how you make disciples. You make disciples by going, <laughs> You make disciples by baptizing, and you make disciples by teaching. You might say it this way. The command that Jesus gives to his disciples, the command that he gives to you and to me is this. Therefore, make disciples, going, baptizing, and teaching. That's the call that he's placed on your life if you're a Christian. But this leads us to a common misconception about our lives and that is that we think, we tend to think, as Christians, that we go about our work, our play, our family life, and the idea of faithfulness to God is simply found in belief, that we believe in Jesus, and then if we try hard enough to please God in the different activities that we're in, our life becomes about him. In this sense, we go about our own agenda for our life, and we Christianize it by saying, I'm going to try things for God in the middle of this, and then my life will be defined by him. And unfortunately, Western Christianity has done a really good job of placing such a heavy emphasis on belief and a very small emphasis on what happens after belief. And we understand why. I mean, belief in Jesus is the hinge. It is the entry point into your relationship with God. You don't have a relationship with God without belief in his son. You have none of the benefits of a relationship with God without the belief in his son. And so we emphasize belief. 
But when you don't emphasize what happens after it, you end up with a whole generation of people that say, now what? Aren't I supposed to do something? Belief in Jesus is the entry point, but friends, he's not done with you after that. He calls you to be a disciple. To be a disciple is to be a Christian, and to be a Christian is to be a disciple. That simply means that you follow him. It means that his priorities become your priorities. It means that his desires become your desires. It means that his way of life becomes your way of life. And God does this in you as you get to know him more and more. He creates these desires in you. Abraham Lincoln uh, met with a group of ministers during the Civil War for prayer. And there's varying accounts about Lincoln's faith. It's pretty commonly believed that he was not a churchgoer, but that he was a man of some kind of faith. And as they were having breakfast together and as they were praying, one of the ministers said to him, Mr. President, we need to pray that God will give us victory, that God will be on our side in this war. And Lincoln's response showed far greater insight. He said, no, gentlemen, let us pray that we are on God's side in this war. He reminded those ministers that religion is not a tool by which we get God to function on our agenda. Quite the opposite is true. When you put your faith in Jesus, you choose to sign up on his agenda. And that begs the question, if you really stop and look at your life, whose agenda are you following? Yours? God's? Somebody else's? To be a Christian is to be a disciple. And to be a disciple, we see here, is to be a disciple maker. We might say that if you are not a disciple maker, then you're not on God's agenda. That's a hard word. It's a hard word because I know the reality of it. The reality is if we pulled the room and said, how many of you have participated in making disciples? Very few of us would actually raise our hand. And so we're confronted with the greatest call of our life and the torch being passed to us and so many of us standing there and saying, what do I do next? Christian, you are called to a disciple-making life. And it is the best life that you can have. If you look back with me at the text, you see these three descriptions of a disciple-making life. You see that it includes verse 19, going. And I love this expression, even though we so often misunderstand it. Going here is a description of making disciples. We might phrase it this way. In your goings, make disciples. As you go about your work, as you go about your play, as you're at your kids' sporting events, as you're engaging in the neighborhood barbecue, in those contexts of everyday rhythms of life, be a disciple maker. That's a different way of looking at your daily existence than so many of us do. Disciple making becomes a key component, it becomes a fabric, it becomes a motivation for the life of a Christian. It's part of my rhythm, it's one of my goals. 
Baptizing can then aptly be described here as another element of making disciples. It's to say that um, people are initiated into the life of faith. Baptism, we're going to celebrate it this morning, right after the sermon, with the Kecks. And they are saying publicly, I believe in Jesus. I'm following him with my life. There's an evangelism component that happens there. And then this initiation. And then thirdly, we see teaching. It says, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And so you get the progression, right? The Christians say, I'm going to, in my goings, make disciples. I'm going to be where people are. I'm going to engage with people. And, and when they put their faith in Christ, they're going to be baptized. This is part of disciple making. And then when they're baptized, we continue in teaching them how to live. They're gleaning how to follow God with their life and the ins and outs and the ups and downs with the joys and the pains. In the big picture, God is not calling you to participate in just helping people to believe. But he's calling you to help people walk down the road of transformation. And in fact, there's a torchbearer who's handed you the torch. And it's time for you to advance it. Christian, you are called to a disciple-making life. And if that's the what of your calling, then what about the who? There is a surprise in this passage, and the surprise is one that is sometimes lost on us with Western eyes. It's not that God has put a calling on your life to do something. I mean, really, just step back and think about it. We're talking about God, the King of kings. And Jesus, who expresses here in this passage, he has all authority to do anything he wants. His resurrection has guaranteed that he has authority over everything in the universe, including you. And therefore, he can tell you what to do. And it makes sense that he would tell us to do this because he wouldn't be so cruel as to leave us purposeless in this life to just sort of figure our way through. No, God, in his mercy and his grace, wants us to be fulfilled, wants us to be part of something meaningful, even the most meaningful. And so one of his great kindnesses to us is that we get to participate in this cosmic plan of redemption that he has for humanity. The surprise is not that he has a call on your life and that he expects you to do something. We should actually expect that. But the call, or the surprise in this call, is that who he expects them to do it to. He's speaking here to his 11 remaining disciples. They're Jewish. And for centuries, the Jews have experienced God as their God and their God alone. And for centuries, God has displayed his works and his ways through these people. And for centuries, there was the expectation that he would save the nation of Israel and the nation of Israel alone. And now, in some of his final interactions, he stands before them and says, go and make disciples. But he doesn't say, go and make disciples with the nation of Israel. Go and make disciples with all nations. And who are all the nations? You. You represent the nations. The vast majority of you here are Gentiles. And here in Northeast Ohio, we have people of Italian descent, Slovaks, Poles, Irish, English, Arab, Africans, Mexicans, even Germans. Even Germans. I know. You are the nations. We are the nations. And so when you think about 
this call that God has placed on your life, okay, it's not just for pastors and missionaries. It's for all Christians. And he tells them to engage with the nations. But the nations are right here. You are sitting in the middle of the nations. And now you say, man, this really is for me. He's placed me in the middle of it. He's called me to do it. But what's one of the biggest hurdles? One of the biggest hurdles that we have that so many of us have a hard time getting over is that to make disciples, you really need to invest your life in other people. For some of us, that's exciting. For some of us, that's fearful. And for others of us, it's just downright annoying. I mean, people are some of the weirdest, most inconsistent creatures on the planet. I mean, I tell my wife all the time that the world would be much better if everyone was just like me. <laughs> she rolls her eyes and I said, fine, they don't have to be like me, they just have to agree with me. Well, they don't have to agree with me, they just have to do what I tell them to do. But we all tend to think that way. And this causes a tremendous hurdle in our mind to say, it's messy to invest my life in other people. I remember talking to a gentleman one time of how he was bored in his relationship with God. He professed to be a Christian. He read his Bible. He went to church. He used to serve in some program along the way. He had drifted off to the fringe. His kids graduated high school, and now they were out of the house, and they were trying to figure out what life looked like next for them. Some of this story is your story. And he looked, he sat across the table, and he said, I'm bored. I know, I thought God was supposed to be exciting. I'm trying to follow him. I'm at a place where I'm bored. And when I'm bored, I wander. And when I wander, I fall prey to temptation. And when I fall prey to temptation, I begin to fill my life with other things. And I know it's not the way it's supposed to be. Help me figure a way back to not being bored, to be excited about my relationship with God. And I asked him one simple but direct question. When was the last time you had somebody over to your house for dinner? And he couldn't answer. He couldn't answer because he wasn't investing in people. You see, God's agenda is transferring people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son and then transforming them into the likeness of his son. And he uses people, he uses disciple-making disciples to do that very work. You might even say it just summary this way. God's agenda is all about people. And if your spiritual life is boring, then I dare say you're probably not investing in people. If you want a vibrant, interesting, ongoing, dynamic relationship with God, then participate in his agenda, and it has to do with investing in people. But not just people for the sake of sitting around the campfire and yucking it up. In the transforming work that God does of taking someone from belief to eternity and the growth that happens in between. Christian, you are called to be a disciple-making disciple. You're called to a disciple-making life. And if you're bored, you're probably not investing in that calling. 
You know, it was a long time until someone finally told me that Jesus didn't call me to believe and that was it. That Jesus actually called me to do something with my life after I put my faith in him. And I was open to that. I mean, I, and I wanted that. And so when this idea of being a disciple maker came up, I had every excuse in the world. I'm too young. I don't know what I'm doing. I had all the same questions that so many of you are having right now, which is, Pastor Nick, if this is supposed to be the defining thing that I do with my life, number one, why has nobody ever told me before? And number two, how? <laughs> how do I get started? Let me tell you the first step. The first step is to come to the realization and to make the decision that your life is no longer about advancing your own agenda. But that you, in putting your faith in Jesus, are making a decision to embrace God's agenda for your life. That sounds simple. But that is a massive paradigm shift that almost all of us have been raised with. To say that my life is not my own anymore. That act, and Pastor Brent talked about that a little bit last week, didn't he, when he said he died. <laughs> that actually, yes, God calls me to have a job and provide for my family and to succeed in those things and to do a variety of good things in this life. But the fabric through all of that is disciple-making. That's a tremendous paradigm shift. And from there, now you are, if you're willing to do that, now there's a training piece that comes into play. One of the things I love about what's happening at Old North right now is that one of the growing pieces of our identity is that of a training church. Because we take this charge from God very seriously. And we take a lot of other charges, of course, in the New Testament seriously as well. But we recognize that we don't naturally know how to live a disciple-making life. And there's all kinds of infringements in our culture right now that prohibit that from happening. And so, starting in September, we are going to take the next step in training. And we're hoping to train as many of you as are willing to say, my life is not my agenda, it's God's agenda. And therefore, I want to be a disciple-maker, but I don't know how. And the way we're going to do this next step in the training is through a course, through a small group course that we call Course of Your Life. This is a course that takes this main theme that we're talking about, disciple-making, and an agenda for life, and starts to flesh out the practical details of it. How does this actually work? What do I actually do? How does it, mean, how does it have implications for my time? What about for how I read the scriptures and engage with other people? Course of Your Life is going to be offered on Wednesday night here at the church. If you've never been here on a Wednesday night, it's a crazy hopping place. Uh, we'd love to have you join us. Uh, depending upon our space issues, which we will certainly have, uh, we might offer it on a Sunday morning as well, but we want the primary vehicle for it to be on Wednesday night. And so I would encourage you, as you begin to think, you're a month out from fall now, as you begin to think about what your fall is going to look like, Start to think about how you might engage here on Wednesday night. I can't commend this course highly enough to you. All of our pastors and elders and their wives have gone through it this last year. Many of the key leaders in the church have gone through it over the past year as well. And imagine, imagine what it would be like 
if you had a group of people like this who are motivated in kingdom expanding work, who are trained to do it, and then are loosed in this community to say, wherever I am, I'm going to be on this mission from God, Blues Brother style, to make disciples in the name of Jesus. Christian, you are called to a disciple-making life. You're a torchbearer. And Jesus came to you in this relay of God's kingdom expansion. The torch has been handed off to you. But some of us are saying very plainly, Nick, I've been a Christian for 20 years, but I've dropped the torch. Maybe I didn't know how important it was. Maybe I was injured along the way and I couldn't relay to the next station. Maybe, maybe my heart or my mind wasn't in the right place. But what happens when someone drops the torch on the relay? In the Olympic torch relay leading up to the 2012 Olympic Games in London, England, a 13-year-old boy named Kieran Maxwell fell during the torch relay. And he dropped the torch. A torchbearer dropped the torch. He was quickly helped up, and he smiled as he carried the torch through Bishop Auckland, County Durham. He was a teenager from New Nycliffe, and he underwent chemotherapy before, after being diagnosed with a rare form of cancer in 2010. Following his treatment, he lost part of his left leg. Now, the flame was being carried from 84 miles between Durham and Middlesbrough in England, and Kieran was part of that relay. He was uh, from the village of Hyington. He completed his chemotherapy in October 2011, and less than a year later, now he's in the middle of the Olympic torch relay, guarding and advancing something very important in this great position of honor. However, due to the damage that he had, from his treatment, he lost his left tibia, and he had his left leg amputated below the knee. He now has a prosthetic leg, and he uses a wheelchair most of the time, but would not use a wheelchair in the relay. This was way too important for that. And so, as he walked with the flame through Newgate Street, he stumbled to the ground, and he dropped the torch. And immediately, in a moment of shame and on the ground, people came right alongside of him and they picked him up and they helped him carry the torch, the rest of the leg of his relay. And as he walked through the streets, huge crowds began to gather in Bishop Auckland and they cheered on the torchbearers and they held up banners of support for them. It's a picture, it's a picture of what heaven does when torchbearers go through their life making disciples of Jesus. It's a picture of so many of us who have fallen down <laughs> and dropped the torch, but guess what? The relay isn't over yet. And people come alongside and they help and they train and they encourage and more disciples are made. What happens when you drop the torch? Is it all lost? Should you just quit and pack it in? Not at all. Right alongside of you, supporters come. They carry the load with you and they advance this thing of great importance. Christians, you are called to a disciple-making life. And I know that most of us aren't doing it. But the torch is in your hand. Let's pray.
Lord God, we thank you for uh, such a high calling. You have commissioned us to the guarding and advancement of the most important thing, this work of transformation that you do, that you don't leave us purposeless, that you give us something to sink our teeth into, to devote our lives to, to pray for, to devote our thoughts to, and to experience up close and personal the joy that happens as transformation begins and continues to grow in the lives of those around us. Lord, I, I read this text and we have both at the same time a sobering word to us and an exciting word to us. And my, my prayer is this, that the, that the sobering word of dropping the torch would motivate us to finish this relay well. That we would in, indeed be trained up to a disciple-making life. And that in our years here, however long you have us on this earth, we would be witness to the most exciting thing imaginable. And that is people being transformed. We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.